This morning's reading is taken from John chapter 1, verses 10 to 18. Um, If you're reading from the Church Bibles, that's page 1063. And if you're reading in in the larger print version of that, it's page 1612. And whilst you're finding that... Um, This is the second part of a a mini-series on the first chapter of John. Last week, in the first nine verses, we reflected on that Jesus is eternally God. He is equally God, and he is the creator God. So I pick this up from verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke of when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. And out of the fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. He has made him known. Let's just pray. May these words, Heavenly Father, that we have just read together and the word that Neil will bring shortly, inspired by the Holy Spirit, lead us to know the word who became flesh so that we may truly understand, believe and live. Amen. Thanks very much, Martin. Now imagine you are going to a a weekend music festival, if you're into that sort of thing, and uh, your favourite band is U2, and they're headlining Saturday night. Uh, But you arrive Friday evening, you pitch your tents, you've gone with a group of people, and in the typical British way, you sort of stake your territory, you put your tents out, uh, hoping nobody else will encroach. In the morning, you wake up, and right in the middle, somebody else has pitched their tent. You're about to go and um, have words with them, but out of the tent comes Bono, lead singer of U2, U2, multimillionaire, friend of many world leaders, and instead of living in a five-star hotel, being helicoptered in just for his gig, he's come and pitched his tent among his fans. You're speechless, um, but he says, as he puts his Calagas stove on, fancy a cuppa? That would be quite amazing, wouldn't it? But um, nothing compared to the statement that we're looking at this morning. The Word became flesh 
and made his dwelling, literally pitched his tent among us. It's a statement which has been described as um, one of the most significant and most memorable ever penned at the heart and climax of the gospel. Before we come to it, though, let's just recap on the first verses of the chapter that Wellesley took us through last week, because there we saw how John makes it very clear that Jesus is God. He's eternal. In the beginning was the Word. And that is very important to know, particularly when there'll be many today, often quite religious people, who refuse to accept the divinity of Jesus, who would say, well, he was a good teacher. Maybe even he was a, some sort of heavenly being. But he's not God. And if he's not God, then that has serious implications for us and, and our salvation. If Jesus is not God, then he's not perfect. And if he's not perfect, then how could his death on our behalf be sufficient to atone for the sins of the world? If he's not God, then how can we truly know God? We'll come back to that in a minute. But first, look at an equally important truth, and that is that Jesus was fully human. God became human. In those uh, verses last week, we saw how God came into the world. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Earlier in the service, we saw a video that tried to demonstrate just how incredible it is that the creative God of the universe should choose to come into the world, the world which he's given his created beings to rule over. But this morning we're looking at a different aspect of that. The word became flesh. Not just that God came into this world as God, not that he just took on the appearance of a human for a short while, but the word became flesh. What does it mean to say the word became flesh? Why doesn't it just say that Jesus became a man or he took on a human body? Well, flesh stands for all the aspects of what it means to be human. Not just having a human body, but having a a human mind and emotions and experiences. It also means, um, incorporates all the frailty, the vulnerability of human beings. Vulnerability to temptation, to physical hardship, to illness. Jesus took all that on. He didn't just look like a human. He actually became human. He became flesh. He took on a new nature. And there was an irreversible change in which there was no going back. It wasn't like a chameleon who, who blends in with the surroundings uh, um, and goes back to how he was. It's more like the film, if you've ever seen the film Avatar, um, set on another planet in the, in the future, where uh, humans take on the form of the inhabitants of that planet so they can mix with them through the use of avatars. But at the end of the film, spoiler alert here if you haven't seen it, um, the main character, Jake, has to decide whether he's going to remain a human or permanently become one of the local inhabitants, one of the navvies. Now, the difference with Jesus is that becoming human doesn't mean that he loses his divine nature. His divine nature that we looked at last week has been united to a human nature. So he's fully God and he's fully man. And we'll look at the significance of that in a minute. But, but what first about this expression, he made his dwelling among us. Literally pitched his tent, his tabernacle among us. Well, God dwelling with his people 
It's a key theme throughout the Bible. Um, the covenant that God established with Abraham in the, uh, the Old Testament uh, was that he would be their God, him and his descendants. Let's just turn to um, Exodus while we can, second book in the Bible, Exodus chapter 29. Verse 45. We've got a church Bible, it's on page 88. God's saying, So I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of Egypt, so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So here we see God making clear to his people that by dwelling among them, it is showing them that he is their God. And the tabernacle was the, uh, the symbolic place where God would dwell with his people, which is why he gave very clear instructions about how it should be put together. After the tabernacle came the temple, the temple in Jerusalem. And I think we've got a couple of pictures coming up of these two different uh, places where God would dwell with his people after they had taken possession then of the promised land. But as the people disobeyed God, as they were sent into exile, he allowed the temple to be destroyed by foreign armies. And so in many ways, the, the temple represented the state of the relationship between God and his people. But now as we come into the New Testament, the word, it says, has made his dwelling among us. And that is the fulfillment of that original covenant with Abraham. So it's an incredibly powerful statement that wouldn't have been lost on the Jews of that day. Jesus has pitched his tent among us. But why does it matter that Jesus was, was fully human? Well, a couple of key reasons why it does matter. And the first of those is that he can save us. Remember that song we sang right at the beginning of the service, Who, O Lord, could save themselves? As sinful human beings, we can't save ourselves. There's nothing we can do that would make us acceptable to God. Anything we did would always be tainted by sin. Only God can save us. But because we are, are sinners, we're the ones, the guilty ones, who broke that relationship with God there is almost a responsibility on us to do something about that. There should be people who repair the relationship. So you have this interesting dilemma. Only God can save us, but only people should save us. Well, that is why God's solution was to send Jesus as both God and man. As God, as a perfect sinless sacrifice, he's able to save us. As man, he's able to represent Humanity. He's able to put right the sin of Adam, who also represented humanity. As it says in 1 Corinthians 15, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Jesus the man can save us. Secondly, he can identify with us. And as human beings, we all struggle with, with sin and temptation. That's why in the prayer that Jesus taught 
his disciples to say, he, he said, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And when Jesus was on earth, he was subject to the temptation of the devil. He was led out into the wilderness for 40 days and nights and was tempted. But all through, throughout his life, he was tested with, with tiredness and hunger, uh, rejection, betrayal, injustice and pain. He was tempted to not go through with the whole crucifixion. And so he knows what it is to be vulnerable to temptation. Let's have a quick look at uh, Hebrews 4, going forward to the, towards the, uh, the end of uh, the Bible. Hebrews 4 on page 1204 of the Church Bibles, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. There are particularly painful experiences we have in life, uh, well, we feel no one can really understand what we're going through unless they've gone through it themselves. We may just feel quite, quite different from others, and even our friends and family can't really get us. Uh, as a result, we maybe cut ourselves off, maybe we become even more isolated. We may be tempted to think, well, God doesn't really understand what I'm going through. And it may be easy to, to give up trusting him, maybe to find escape in uh, uh, some other person or thing. But God didn't just design you and make you as the unique person that you are. He also experienced himself, what it means to be a human being, and did that by becoming human. Jesus knows and understands what you are going through. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Call out to him in your need. God became human. Secondly, in Jesus, we see God. Why did Jesus come and dwell among us? Well, he came so that we would be saved. He came as a saviour. But he also came because in Jesus, God wants us to, to see and know him. It came out of that video earlier on, didn't it? Look at, um, going back to John 1, look at verse 18, what it says there. It says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. God is spirit. You know, we can't see God, but he has revealed himself to us in Jesus. Because Jesus is truly God, we can know God. If Jesus wasn't truly God, then we wouldn't really know God. If he was some sort of heavenly being, then we would have an idea of uh, what God might be like if he told us about that. But it wouldn't really be God. We wouldn't truly know him. So what is God like then? What do we see of God in Jesus? Well, have a look at verse 14. We have seen his glory, 
the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Jesus, we've seen the glory of God. What is that glory, though, that we talk about, that we sing about so, so much? What do we mean by it? Well, let's go back again to, to Exodus. Sorry for flicking about a little bit this morning, but um, useful references, I think. Exodus 33, verse 18. We've already seen in this passage here that it's God's presence that distinguishes his people from the rest of the world. And then Moses asks God, verse 18, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. God's glory is seen there in his mercy and compassion. What did Jesus come to do? He came to show mercy and compassion to a broken world that needed God. That's why, going back to John 1, 14, we're told we've seen his glory in his Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Now, it's not the first time we saw God's grace in action. We've seen God's grace in the, in the Old Testament. We've seen it in the time of Moses. But now it's fulfilled in Jesus. God is grace. Or as John says in his first letter, God is love. He's overflowing with love. And the amazing thing is that he loves his sinful creatures. It says here that Jesus came into the world. And when the word world is used in John's gospel, it it doesn't just mean the place where humans live. It means he came into the people that he made, the people, many of whom rejected God. And so when it says a couple of chapters later in John 3.16, that very familiar verse, God loved the world, it means God showed mercy and compassion to a sinful people. Because the verse continues, God loved the world in such a way that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The world didn't deserve the gift of God's son. God didn't need to give his son. But because of the fullness of his love, his grace, he gave his son. And that is his glory. That is why he's such an awesome God. What God also reveals about himself in Jesus is that he's full of truth. He's true. He's real. He's not real just because people could see him and touch him when he came into this world. He's real because he's God. He's eternal. He's not like the things we see but just don't last. He's more real than all that we can see. This is what it says in 2 Corinthians. We look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This week, Mark and I have been going around um, the village in our Christmas jumpers, interviewing people. I think there's a picture coming up. Um, in the pub, in the, uh, the flower pot, um, been to the, the school gate, had some very highly sophisticated recording equipment, which is basically a mobile phone and... Uh, a rolling pin covered in tinsel. And we asked people, what does Christmas mean to you? Uh, and for those who didn't mention 
Jesus, some of the most frequent responses were fun or food, but also family. That's one of the most frequent responses that came because what is most real, what is most true for people is relationships, isn't it? And that's sadly why Christmas can be hard for a lot of people, isn't it? Because Christmas um, may be the time they lost someone very dear to them. And underneath all the jollity, there's still that pain, that reminder of their, their loneliness. What is most real or true for people is found in relationships. But even then, you can have false or superficial relationships. Certainly no human relationship is perfect. Every relationship is in some way marred by, by, by sin. But we all crave close relationships. And to say God is truth is to say that the relationship you have with God is the one true relationship that, that you need. The Son, it says here in verse 18, is in the closest relationship with the Father. And the great news of Christmas is that we too can have that relationship with the Father. God is truth. God is reality. And that is what we see in Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. So what has all this got to do with me then as we come to, towards the end? What is the connection between God becoming human? In Jesus we see God and me. Well, verse 16 there gives the answer, out of his fullness we have all, all received grace in place of grace already given. God came not just to show us grace, he came for us to receive that grace and we must receive it. Verse 10 is one of the most, I think, saddest verses in the Bible. He was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. I'm sure all, um, we've all at some point known what it is to, to be rejected, to have love that is not uh, requited. Uh, and the more we love someone, the more painful that can be. And that is why this verse is so hard, that for all God has done for the people he has made there will still be some who refuse to accept that he even exists, who will reject the truth of Jesus, who will reject the gift of his grace, of his love, and who are sadly heading for eternity where there will be no love or, or blessing. But against that, the following verse is the most positive. Yet it says, To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. And that is the wonderful promise of Christmas, isn't it? That God wants us to become his children. He wants to forgive us for, for all our sin. He wants to take away all our guilt. He wants to help us with our problems. He wants to give us the strength that we need. He wants to fill us with hope and joy and peace. Now, that is the meaning of grace, and that is why Jesus pitched his tent among us. This evening we've got a baptismal service when two young men, Ollie and uh, Matt, will be um, uh, professing their faith in Jesus Christ as their saviour. They have received his gift of grace.
If you have not yet received that gift, will you ex- experience God's grace this Christmas? Will you receive the gift that he offers? Will you enjoy the truth of a relationship with God as your father? A father who wants to lavish good gifts on his children. Will you allow him to fill your heart with everlasting joy? Joy to the world. Let's have a moment of quiet before we do sing that that final hymn. But just to reflect on what God has been saying to each one of us and what we need to hear and take away. Father God, we thank you that Jesus became flesh. We thank you that it means he can save us. He knows exactly uh, what we go through as humans, the struggles and temptations that we have, and we uh, lift them up to you now. We ask him to take them and carry them for us. Lord, we thank you for your grace. And we ask now that you would... Uh, lavish it on us. Help us to receive it if we haven't yet received it. Lord, we thank you for the truth of a relationship with you. And maybe that relationship that gives us the peace and joy that we all need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please do stay for some refreshments. Um, but let's close now by saying the grace together. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.